Bakın tamam değil. My mama uses power. Thank you for listening. Bye. Finding the right jeans is hard. Accepting your jeans is even harder. Whether you wear boyfriend or bootcut, high-rise or low-rise, this podcast will teach you to love the jeans you are in. I'm Rachel. And I'm Tina. And we're going to use modern research to bust diet myths and get real about body after baby. We're going to take you on a journey of unpacking your old beliefs about food and weight so you can learn to nourish your body and raise body-confident kids. So put your booty in a chair and let's talk mom jeans. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Mom Jeans. We are going to be chatting today about eating disorders. As many of you know, Rachel and I met working at a treatment center for eating disorders and our private practices revolve around helping those who struggle with eating disorders, disordered eating, etc. So this is a topic we always love to dive into. But the myth we want to bust open today is about eating disorders and race. The myth we are busting is eating disorders only happen to thin white women. We want to make sure that we are not taking up the space that it isn't ours to take up. So we are going to give our brief thoughts on this myth, and then we are handing over the mic to a psychotherapist, Nakomi Higgins, to help us bust this myth even more. All right, we want to start this episode off with a little pretend story. Imagine you are a white mom with your white child, and you are at home in your kitchen prepping an after-school snack. Your child says that their new friend at school, who is of another race or culture than your family, has invited them over for a playdate tomorrow, and they're excited to go. While you're talking, they're looking in the pantry for a certain food for snack, and when they ask, why don't we have this, or where is this food, you answer, oh, well, that food isn't that healthy. We shouldn't eat that. So they pick an option you have available, the night goes on. Well, fast forward to the next day. Your child's off of this playdate of the friend that they're excited about, and the parent serves an after-school snack of that snack your child had just asked for the day prior. Imagine in that moment if that child innocently says, my mom says I can't eat this food because it's not healthy. But that is a common after-school snack and staple in their house due to their culture or financial situation or their food beliefs. Your child has literally just told them that the way they eat is bad, is subpar, is not nutritious. Ouch. Your child's also now in a conundrum. Should they eat this food and disobey you? Wait, are they bad or unhealthy if they eat this food? Should they tell you? Will they get in trouble? Should they sneak it and not tell you? What if something happens to their health if they eat this food? Oh my goodness, like what power and messaging, what lack of cultural awareness is all in a simple statement of that food is not healthy. That story might not make sense based on the myth we are busting, but stick with us here. We're going to make sense. (laughs) We are passionate about broadening the definition of health because healthism is rooted in white supremacy and the white privileged definitions of taste, recipes, and ingredients that are deemed to be the most nutritious or appropriate for a meal. Part of combating this definition of one's relationship with food is part of combating this myth today. 
because this white-centered definition harms so many by both its definition of health and beauty and by the definition of what is a disordered relationship with food. Yeah, over the years, research has linked girls' body dissatisfaction and disordered eating to the expectations of body perfection flaunted in teen magazines, advertising in Hollywood, and the svelte body was associated with self-control. For more on the history of the racial roots of that messaging, we highly recommend Sabrina Strings' Fearing the Black Body book. But what was less explicit about the research was that this media centered on white women and the research prioritized white girls. For example, in 1995, Newsweek reported on a three-year study from the University of Arizona that found neither all of 14 to 17-year-old white girls, 90%, were dissatisfied with their bodies and believed the dream frame was essentially a Barbie doll. But women of color were absent from these representations because they were assumed to not suffer from eating disorders because they reportedly had better body attitudes than their white peers since brown and black celebrities touted curves and a rounder figure. The same study revealed that 70% of black girls were satisfied with their bodies, but coverage of it downplayed the statistics that more than half of them dieted. Research in the early 2000s revealed that women of color did indeed suffer from eating disorders, but were being disregarded in media representations and cultural conversations about them. It turned out that all women faced pressures to conform to media-concocted body ideals, and not just thin white ones. NIDA statistics report that black teenagers are 50% more likely than white teenagers to exhibit bulimic-type behavior such as binging and purging. Yeah, the bottom line is that eating disorders occur in everyone because everyone has to have a relationship with food to survive. Plus, food is pleasurable and enjoyable, which allows it to be used for celebrating our religious holidays, connecting with friends and family over similar food preferences, honoring our culture and ancestors through the remaking of recipes, and is a beautiful way to celebrate life. But diet culture is centered in the definition of the white beauty ideal, which means that all people suffer as they try to find their identity, build their confidence, find their food freedom, and navigate their body image development according to this unrealistic beauty ideal. So we hope this intro helps lay the foundation for what was a fabulous interview to have, and we're so excited for you to hear. So should we bust this myth? Yeah, let's do it. I'm going to tell you about Nakomi, who we interviewed today. So Nakomi Higgins is a licensed psychotherapist, speaker, professor of psychology at Pepperdine University, author of her upcoming book, Purposeful Perspectives, Empowering Black Women Towards Spiritual Enlightenment, Self-Mastery, and Joy, as well as the founder of Soul-Centered Life, a holistic wellness practice dedicated to dynamic women of color who desire to enhance their life, careers, and purpose-led visions through transformative counseling and coaching. Nakomi has been a proud treatment provider within the eating disorder community for nearly a decade. Let's get to it. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Mon Jeans. Today we are busting the myth only thin white girls have eating disorders. And who better than Nakomi Higgins to come on and slash this myth with us? Welcome, <laughs> Nakomi. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> 
<laughs> so we are going to get right to it. And we want you to tell us a little bit about who you are and why you're passionate about busting this myth. So I am a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I've been practicing, my God, for about a decade now. Um, and I have founded the private practice or the, the wellness practice, Soul-Centered Life, which is really dedicated to um, you know, women of color who want to heal and grow in the areas of depression and anxiety and eating disorders. And so I got my start actually um, treating individuals in the eating disorder community in Georgia. So I was in the South when I got my star and it was a big old experience because there weren't a lot of clinicians that looked like me um, in the space. So it's really been an area of passion for me. One, because as a woman of color, um, you know, mental health is already being more talked about and the stigma around mental health. So then when we start to peel back the layers and get into like, our relationship with food and eating disorders, it really wasn't something that was talked about, but it was so prevalent and we didn't know how to name it and put a word to it. Um, so at that time in my career, I just knew I wanted to explore eating disorders through my internship and just fell in love um, with the population of people. Um, and so my, you know, my passion around busting this myth is not only because I really do believe that education is powerful, but I have children of my own. And um, I think when it comes to coping, um, we're all trying to survive in this big old world. And so, um, it's important that we also understand and create space to shed light on the way, the different ways that even we are trying to cope through food. So, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. And I, I was introduced to you through the Ted Wind Inclusivity Conference and yes. one of my very good friends, Lynette, who we're having on this podcast uh, on another episode. Love she, her. <laughs> yes. Um, and you guys did a fabulous presentation Thank around you. really this topic of eating disorders in the black community, more specifically yeah. to black women. And so yeah. um, I think you had a lot of good information in that presentation that really opened my eyes even as an educated professional in this field, but being like, mm. holy shit, this entire population, specifically Black women, are being neglected. Yeah. Right? Yeah. In treatment. Um, and so this is one of the reasons why Rachel and I wanted to bust this myth for those that um, really just don't have this insight and need a little bit more education around that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's extremely prevalent. And, you know, in my practice, the first step is just giving it a name, you know what I'm saying? And there's so much education around it because what we see in, um, you know, communities of color, but specifically amongst black women, we see more bulimia and binge eating. Um, and, the relationship that Black Americans have with food, it has historical context. Um, and it's attached to um, success, joy, connection, and so much more. And so a lot of my clients are coming into um, the room, not really aware of what diet culture is, right? Not really aware that they've been stuck in this cycle, not really aware that the behaviors that they're using to cope 
are in fact acts of avoidance. And so there's a lot of naming it. There's a lot of just providing education and introducing them to resources as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that eating disorders have been toted as like the rich white girl's disease. So how do you see it being misdiagnosed or not appropriately treated as a result of that stereotype? So what oftentimes I'm seeing is when there, there are a few ways to look at this. So in the, in the medical perspective, I think it is really, I think medical professionals have been conditioned to also diagnose and support through the lens of one body type, what is considered health. Whereas when we're entering into, you know, the body type of black women, there's definitely a different bone structure there. There's a different size. And so there is this myth first and foremost that, okay, you look healthy. So you, and by look, as we all know, health, you know, you look healthy, therefore you must not be struggling. Um, and yet these women are coming in saying all of the red flags, right? Like I'm, I'm always on a diet or I'm not eating consistently or I'm using laxatives or I'm doing these things, but because the physical appearance appears healthy, quote unquote, there is a huge opportunity to really educate these women on the, the toxic behaviors. The other piece that we're seeing is because more and more Black women are seeking support in the form of their mental health. They're coming in and they're talking about depression and anxiety, but assessments aren't in place to really further examine how is that depression affecting your relationship with food and your, and your body. In fact, um, you know, how are you coping with the depression anxiety? So there's some questions that are being missed because we're just staying at the surface. And because we might even hear a client say, oh, well, well, I'm eating, you know, I'm eating. And again, if we're looking at the, if we're going off of this physical appearance, which oftentimes is the case, we're missing the cognitive emotional relationship with food. And so important questions just aren't being asked to be honest with you. So it's, it's, you know, I think the other piece is um, we ourselves are saying, I don't have no eating disorder. That's a thin white girl, you know, that's a rich white girl's um, condition. So we're also buying into the myth. And unfortunately for a lot of my clients who are really entrenched in their eating disorder, that, you know, buying into that myth has helped them really hide uh -huh. in their ED. Yeah. And I know before you had mentioned, hey, there's some historical root system here. Can you dive into that a little bit? Yeah. So when I talk about kind of our history with food, it, you know, food has always been a symbolism of wealth, for lack of better words, right? When you're doing well, you have an abundance of it. When we are, you know, in the holidays, there is an abundance of food to reflect the, you know, uh, gr gratitude. It's there as a means to, again, connect. And so food has had, has held a really symbolic place in Black culture. Because, you know, in our heritage, it wasn't always afforded to us. You know, if we go back to slavery, Black Americans had to feed themselves based on the scraps that they were given. So they had to turn 
something, you know, nothing into something. And food was the only currency that we could use to say, I love you, that we could use to, to heal, that we could use to, um, connect. Right. And so, because food has had such a symbolic place and role in our lives, when you are someone, you know, when my clients are struggling with food, whether it be because they have a diagnosable eating disorder, or maybe they're just engaging in some disordered eating, um, there's some fear. There's some fear. There's some shame. Um, If I don't eat this, what will my family say? What attention will be brought into my life, um, to my problems? But there's also, I'm not feeling okay. I'm not doing okay. So how can I use food as a means to comfort this emptiness that I'm having? So, you know, as professionals, we have to hold space to understand the role that food plays in a family system, but specifically in that family, that individual's life because of the cultural roots connected to it. I hope that answers your question. It does. And I think it's really important for clinicians listening to this is why we put it in client-centered care, right? Yes. Where you're taking the treatment based off of the client's individual lived experience, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So as a privileged individual myself, a straight-sized white woman that I need to take the individual's lived experience because there are historical patterns that you're talking about, different lived experience, different cultural patterns that I just can't relate to, right? And that is privilege. And so in order to hold this anti-racist platform, inclusivity platform, I need to make sure that I'm taking the individual's experience, the individual's body autonomy, um, goal preferences, things along those lines to support them in their recovery. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's powerful. That's powerful because one of the things that we, that I see too within my community is there's a lot of, there's a lot of also atypical presentations around an eating disorder. You might have um, a woman who is in a fuller body size, but she's cognitively using language in line with someone who struggles with anorexia, right? And she may not be getting the nutrition and the sustenance that she her body needs. But again, she's going towards diet culture because her body doesn't look the way it's supposed to, it's supposed to look, quote unquote. And so because of these atypical presentations, we can't take things face value. You know, this is really? me getting on a different platform and being like, this DSM-5 <laughs> diagnosis is crap. It's crap. Why is there a difference between anorexia and atypical anorexia? Can it just yes. be anorexia yes. and the body piece taken out of it? Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, and, and so, you know, when we're, when we're, one of the things that I have learned through my years of working with women of color, that's what I'm saying. The education is so key. But I also, as another woman of color, have to open up space for their narrative and their relationship with food and their body to have a voice because it really does look different. It really does look different for everyone. I think this is where the treatment world and the treatment of eating disorders can be so harmful because it's coming from a white-centered lens and a white lived experience and it's not coming from the client's lived experience. So how do you see it being harmful as well from your perspective and from the stories that you're hearing? Yeah, so one of the things that I oftentimes, 
the feedback that I get is there's sometimes a pushiness, right? Sometimes my clients are going into treatment centers in which the recovery team is defining recovery. And let's be clear, to a certain extent, we have to give some guidance there, but we are setting stipulations, you know, the treatment team is setting stipulations or defining recovery in a way that isn't conducive to that individual's life, right? And it's not conducive to their obligations. And so sometimes they're saying things like, well, they're telling me that I have to do this, but that, you know, I, I wasn't raised that way, right? I wasn't, they're telling me that the macaroni and cheese or that the fried chickens and things like that, that I should have that um, in abundance, right? But then at the same time, I'm getting a different message that's telling me something different. Then I'm getting a social message that's telling me something different. Where do I get to speak about all of these messages that I'm getting? I'm also being told that as a Black woman, my beauty isn't good enough, right? And so I'm being told all these messages and when i resist or reject i'm being told that i'm not in line with my recovery goals or i'm being told that i'm co you know i'm colluding with my eating disorder and so there is this resistance of like well wait a second i really think we do have to help our clients as, as a treatment team discern like again yeah when are you colluding with your eating disorder and when are you really bringing in cultural aspects of your narrative, social economics there, you know, um, factors of your narrative that we do need to take into consideration as we help you define recovery um, and what it means to be recovered in your body. And I think that this is our whole passion and hopefully, you know, I know that there are some treatment centers really trying to work on it, but providing that education, right? In this in the anti-racist movement, movement, it's not even a move, just being anti-racist, right? That it's all about education and making sure that yeah. you don't pretend that you know as white individuals, right? That we are learning and then correcting. And so if you're, you know, we have these treatment facilities that just aren't providing that care or treatment providers that aren't providing that care. Yeah. And I think one of the things, and I don't think I, I like the word, I can appreciate the word harmful, but what I'm going to share now, I do not think is intentionally trying to be harmful, but I think what is also still very, very prevalent is there isn't enough diversity in the treatment staff, right? So when I was working, um, I managed to kind of through my own growth, I was a clinical director of a residential treatment program. And then I became, you know, I worked my way up into more senior leadership and that visibility was key to walk into a treatment program and see someone of color in leadership or to see someone who is knowledgeable about the information. Um, so I think that as more and more professionals start to lean into this conversation of wanting to be more educated as a provider, um, and then also more treatment centers diversify their treatment staff, you know, their treatment team and bring in cultural aspects, right? Like when we're talking about gathering around the table and eating, are you know for lunch are we are we having international food day right where we're bringing in 
different flavors where we're bringing in different ethnic um, um, dishes and allowing clients to speak to that? Are we allowing clients to suggest? Um, so how are we incorporating the diversity of our world into our program? How are we infusing um, that into our group setting as well? Because I think when we can create space um, for those conversations, we really do create space for our clients to have um, a broader voice as it relates to their experience um, with their body and with food. I think this is really helpful specifically for clinicians in the field and treatment providers. And now we're going to shift it to kind of that parent role because our podcast is geared towards the parents and those just trying to build more insight so that they're breaking diet legacy from their family and passing on more positive perspectives, more awareness to their kids. So how would you speak to parents? What would you tell parents to support themselves in this awareness piece so that it doesn't get passed on to children, their kids? Yeah. The, the first thing that I always say is, you know, you're not alone. And so you don't have to do it alone. One of the things that I absolutely love about working in this community alongside professionals is the passion and the desire to help to be you know more culturally sensitive um gender sensitive body sensitive all of those things i mean the professionals are just so truly passionate about breaking these myths and so i think if you are a parent who is also struggling with these myths. This is a perfect opportunity to work with a dietitian. This is a perfect opportunity to work with a therapist and you yourself be taught how to make these mindset shifts and also educate your kiddos. Um, you don't have to do it alone. It's so hard and there are so many messages in our world that are triggering, that are canceling, or that are attempting to really cancel out. Um, this positive movement towards acceptance and towards um, really just being authentic in your body. And so, you know, I always say first step as a parent, don't do it by yourself. Get support. As you're talking about um, just being mindful of the language that is used in the treatment world and the, the treatment perspectives, the one thing that really was crossing my mind was how it's very often to it's very often that food challenges are part of treatment world. And this actually can go into how we talk about food in the home. So this relates. But it's very common for the the food challenge to be something that is a challenge maybe to a thin white girl whose family is steeped in healthism and therefore needs to legalize this food. And yet when it's a quote-unquote you know, scary food, but it's for the entire room. And another client sitting there going, this is a common food in my culture. Wait, is this a scary food? Is, is this a food that I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to think is unhealthy? Wait, now you're judging my family meal and telling me it's scary. So that, exactly. was, that was my thought. But I think this also can go into the conversations at home and how we identify foods, how we talk about foods, how we're not inclusive about certain foods and really looking at just the food neutrality and how we label foods. That was kind of my thought. So I'm curious what you think. 
No, but that's it. That right there is what I mean when I'm saying when we're talking about the unintentional ways that treatment can be harmful is is like that's a beautiful example. And I think that someone, you know, I've had clients just kind of sit back and just say, like, this isn't for me. They don't get me. I, you know, I want to work with you on an individual setting, but this group thing, they're not They're insulting me in the process of their recovery. Yeah. Yeah. And now I'm taking this, this message, my eating disorder has latched on, I'm going back home. And now my family's trying to figure out why I don't want to eat this food. And and now they're feeling like I'm judging them. (laughs) And so there's this tension. And yeah, that I love that you shared that. Well, how would it bring, how can we bring this then to those individuals being like, but I, I can't tell if my kid is struggling, right? Like, the, the struggles that are happening, um, the language that is being used isn't, isn't as obvious. What would you say to those parents that maybe have kids struggling or bring up these conversations at home? Yeah, I think the, the first thing is um, sometimes I remember, you know, when I had my children, they were young, I was, I was hypersensitive to the language and I was just jumping like, don't, we don't use fat as a word. We can never, you know what I'm saying? And, and I was, I could, I think what is important first is we do have to do a lot of listening and observing first to better understand what's happening. Um, I think also for the parent who's, you know, kiddo may be struggling, we do have to have those conversations, but from a listening perspective first, and we are allowed to receive the message, process it a little bit, and then follow back up with the conversation. Because if you yourself are struggling in that moment, you may not have the answers. In that moment, you may not know what to say. In that moment, you might even validate. And our kids are really good at saying, well, mom, I hear you. You're always looking in the mirror. You're always talking about, you know, do I look fat? You're always making these comments. So I feel like I have to do it too. And so I think we have to first start with listening, really creating space just to ask questions from a place of curiosity. And when we're receiving messages that are concerning or that can, um, that are indicating that there is a bigger issue there, I think we then need to take a moment and really process it. And then I think we have to revisit the conversation again. Um, But the other thing is, I think it's really important as a family, um, if you're in this place, again, if you're not in this place, this is why it's important to work with the professionals who can help guide you. Um, but if you're in this place, it's important to sit down and really, or you know, what are our values as a family? What matters to us in this family? And, you know, how can we hold each other accountable to support a more accepting environment? What does that look like for us as a family? You know, um, if you have younger kids, it's just coming out of the gate talking openly about your relationship with your body and the fact that you have good days in your body and you have some some not so good days in your body, but it's not a reflection of your character, the quality of person that you are. Um, I can go on for days. I just want to make sure I'm not like veering off (laughs) for you guys. So yeah, so I think it's really about for those parents who might a, be concerned that their kiddo is struggling. It's starting with the conversation in which you're really just listening. Um, 
allowing yourself to process what you're hearing and then following up with that dialogue. The other piece though is again, I really can't stress enough the importance of help. You know, a lot of parents um, also fall into guilt. I'm doing this to my child. It must be my fault that they're in this place. Um, and, and when it comes to helping to steer our children into a healthier relationship with self and body and food, you know, guilt really can't serve that, that process. We have to be, we, we have to um, ourselves allow ourselves to learn compassion um, and also teach it. Do you have anything else to kind of close up that you would want to add to continue busting this myth? You know, I think for, um, for any of, I think for anyone, I think the first thing we just have to accept is that when it comes to a person's relationship with food and body, there really is no, um, it's not exclusive to anyone. Um, unfortunately, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, disordered eating, it does not <laughs> um, segregate. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? At the end of the day, everyone, you know, an eating disorder is an attempt to cope. And disordered eating is an attempt to cope, to make sense, to control, to function. And so I think we have to first acknowledge that we're all trying to survive and cope. And so unfortunately, there are some of us, regardless of what we look like, regardless of our body size, that find ourselves in the throes and wrestling with what, is it, what does this food mean to me? What is my relationship with my body? What is my relationship with food? And, and how is it affecting the quality of my life? And so, you know, as professionals, we just have to be really open. Um, as parents, we have to be open to having those conversations. And if we don't know how to have those conversations, we have to put ourselves in the hands of professionals who are willing and able to teach us. I think that was going to be really helpful for our parents who are listening that are not professionals. It's like, okay, I get you guys in your treatment world need to do your thing, but how do I bust this myth in my home? And I think what you talked about right there is so key, which is that food is a coping skill. Food is a way we regulate our emotions. Every person, regardless of their access to food, their culture, their race, their ethnicity, has to have a relationship with food in order to survive. So how do we kind of help bust the fact that there's only certain people that will struggle with their relationship with food? Exactly. It's, it, yeah, everyone is, you know, and, and as long as we're open to the fact that even our little ones are trying to figure out how to make sense of this big old world and no one necessarily is going into this saying, I want to have a bad relationship with my body or food. I want to have an eating disorder. Um, and so it's really just trying to, you know, bust that myth by acknowledging that it could be a possibility. And if you're seeing signs, if you're hearing the language of, I don't like my body. I don't feel good enough. Do you know if you're hearing the insecurity, if you're hearing the self-doubt, um, if you're hearing language like I don't want to eat that because I'm afraid it will make me fat or I've eaten bad today. I've eaten so bad today. You know, when you start hearing some of that language, lean into it. And again, if you're a parent and you're not sure how to change that dialogue, remember that you are not alone and that there are resources there to help teach you um, 
how to uh, shift that in your family system. Family therapy is a great resource. A lot of people think family therapy, you only access when the family is in a state of conflict. Family therapy is a great resource to use when you want to make some cultural shifts within your family, some relational shifts within your family. Um, there are some really great professionals that can help the family define how they want their new kind of ecosystem to start to look. What are some of your favorite resources for parents, if you don't mind sharing a couple? So some of the favorite books that I really, really, um, the first book that I like, it's not really related to um, eating disorders and disordered eating, but I think it is a phenomenal resource as it relates to parent guilt. Um, and it's shameproof parenting. Um, the author is Mercedes Samudio. She is just, she is a, a, a amazing parent coach. Um, and founder of the nonprofit Diversity in Parenting, but it is just a phenomenal book that really speaks to a lot of shame and guilt that parents carry around because of their own unresolved stuff and their fear that they are projecting it onto their their children. And and sometimes the the reality is our children are receiving some of our stuff. And so um, as parents, there's no rule book, and it's just really trying to figure out how to do it the best way possible. I'm pretty sure when my kids become adults, they're going to sit me down at the table and be like, mom, you did this. <laughs> um, I'm ready to own that at some point. Um, so Shame Proof Parenting is just a phenomenal book as it relates to parenting. Um, I'm still a really, really big fan of the eight keys to recovery from an eating disorder. I just love the practical tips um, that are there. I love how Carolyn puts change into perspective, because I think that parents really have to understand that change isn't something that just happens overnight. There is really a readiness for it. There's a wrestling that takes place. Um, another really great book that I love is Embody um, by Connie, uh, I always get Connie's last name right, Sobskak. Um, Another great book, Finding Your Creative or Finding Your Voice Through Creativity. It's a really great creative workbook that I think you can do with kids. Um, I have all, you know, so so those are some uh, not all black girls know how to eat. And I also really just love um, I love the five love languages. And I know that might sound like a really crazy book to um, uh, throw in there. But the reason why I love the five love languages is because they do have one for teens. They also have one for children. Um, I think when parents are learning how to communicate with each other, it is so, or parents are learning how to communicate with their kids and shift the language in the home why not do it from a place of love? Why not learn how to incorporate love into that communication um, so that it sticks? So those are just some of the resources that I really like. Not all are related to um, uh, food and body, um, but yeah. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. I love that. We'll link all of those on our website for our listeners to find, yeah. Thank you. Awesome. And I can send you links to the, the books as well. So can you tell our listeners where they can find you? 
Yeah, so they are welcome to find me. Um, my current handle on Instagram is at the soul, S-O-L, powered coach. Um, my website is soulcenteredlife.com, S-O-L-centeredlife.com. Um, and really just, you know, my Facebook is kind of coming around, but Instagram is probably the best place to kind of reach me and get some tips. But definitely... Um, excited to answer any questions as they come through the pipeline. Yeah. And I think for professionals listening, any talk that you're doing, I think jump on that, yes. you know, cause that's <laughs> yeah. really awesome information there. So yeah. yes, yes, yes. Definitely open to that. And I just thank you guys so much for the work that you're doing. I think as a parent, um, resources like these are phenomenal because we don't have rule books on how to, how to do this, this parenting thing. Um, and more and more of our kids are being subjected to even some of the same messages that we're trying to process and make sense of. And so thank you for, for showing up in this space. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you guys. <laughs> That is a wrap on this episode of the Mythbuster series, and we hope this information provides you with a more critical lens when you hear mainstream diet culture messaging. Please reach out to the person interviewed to connect with them in the ways they listed, or you can check out our social media pages at Mom Jeans the Podcast for details on the episode and to find our guests' information. And if you love the episode, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes and recommend this episode to a friend. Sending you the inner strength to accept your jeans with a G and wear the jeans with a J. Bye. This episode of Mom Jeans was produced and edited by Rachel Coleman and Tina LaBoy. Just a reminder, this episode is not a substitute for therapeutic counsel or nutrition advice. Thank you to Jerry DePizzo for the music production. You can find episode information and show notes at www.momjeansthepodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at momjeansthepodcast and join the Mom Jeans the Podcast Facebook group to find a community of mamas learning to love their bodies and discussing the episodes. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mom Jeans. See you next time.